to another episode of Footy Talks with Stephen Caldwell and it's my absolute pleasure to invite on a good friend of mine and ex-Manchester United, West Brom, Stoke and Scotland international, Darren Fletcher. How are you doing, Darren? How are you doing, Stevie Big Man? You alright? I'm good, mate. It's good to see you. It's, it's been a while, but um, obviously uh, we've been we've known each other for a very long time and, and we've been connected through different points, through international and and uh, you know grassroots uh, football growing up, so it's it's nice to talk to you. And thanks again for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. And as you say, I've known you for a, a long, long time. I think it was twelve when the first time I met you. And as you say, and that's it's a long, long time ago. Looking back now, but hopefully we can look back on some good memories. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll get this started. I always like to start with the the date of birth, February the first, nineteen eighty four. Young Darren Fletcher's born in Dalkeith, Scotland. Uh, outskirts of Edinburgh. Edinburgh boy, I'm pretty sure you consider yourself. Tell us a little bit about what it was like growing up in Dalkeith as a youngster in your family and uh, and was football a, a prominent thing in your life from a very early age? Yeah, well, it's true. Like, yeah, I'm from I'm from the uh, estate just outside Dalkeith, Mayfield. Um, right. It's Mayfield, Dalkeith. But yeah, um, I loved it. Um, at the beginning, I was more interested in um, tractors and cars and things like that. And, um, my dad was uh, from Stranraer. My mum's Irish. My dad was from Stranraer, and um, my dad loved his football. But it wasn't something that he pushed on me or anything like that. Um, I remember my first experiences of trying to play football were just to try and get outside of the back garden. I seen boys who were outside of the back garden fence playing football, and my challenge was really to get outside of my back garden. It wasn't necessarily play football. And then from there, because they were a few years older than me. And I've seen these lads playing football probably out in their scheme, so to speak. I fell in love with the game from there. And then from that moment, my dad then became a big influence. But it wasn't something that he pushed on me, no. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the part that you said you played with older lads because maybe it's because I'm older than you and I've known you since such a young age. But I always think of you as somebody who can step into that older group and, and obviously keep up with your football talents, but also your maturity. Was that, were you always a kind of mature lad and hanging out with guys a little bit older than you? And it was like that, Stevie. It was like a lot older than me as well. So like, you know, I'm talking like at that time, I'm like five, six, and they're like nine, ten, which is a big <laughs> Yeah. You know I mean? yeah. And even when you first start playing football, I remember the local boys club team, I think they started at under nines and I'm only six. And the guy who used to run the team used to, we used to have a shop right next to where we played and he'd walk down and obviously all the rest of the boys played at this local team. And I'd be pestering him going, when can I come? And he's going, you're only six, you can't come. And eventually he gave in and let me come. So at the beginning, I was playing with lads who were like two, three years older than me and obviously gra- grassroots, but I didn't feel out of place. And you just, you just become a product of your environment, really, don't you? Yeah, I played for a club in Falkirk called North Broomish Colts and it was the same with, with Gaz. So I was 10, we were playing at U11 and Gaz was eight. And you know what Gaz is like, you've obviously played with him and, and you know how dedicated and focused he is. And he was coming along to training, so he got a place in the team when he was eight and he was a super sub. But you know what he's like, he's running up and down all the time, playing in the manager's face, trying to get in the field, get a few minutes in the park. He was the same. That was thing. That was thing. The, the the older boys at school as well recognised I was a, I was good. So obviously at school we had one school team. It wasn't a case of like primary two, primary three team. You know, it was one team. So the older boys in primary six and seven recognised that I was good from a young age, and they were telling the school uh, the headmaster like get get him as a super sub, get him on, we'll bring him on. And that same thing. I used to run up and down the sidelines at about 
six-year-old and all the rest of the boys are like, yeah, we'll bring him on and try and nick us a goal. It's, it's funny how that sort of same parallel happened. Yeah, so the, the, the attributes of young Darren Fletcher, I'm pretty sure similar to what became the professional player, but I'm assuming you could run all day and you were, you were quite technical, but I could just imagine you there being agile, almost like skipping past people because of your agility and your size. Oh, exactly. Just being able to run all day. And that's another thing. Like, I just remember never being in the house and running about everywhere. Like, you know, playing football and the distances you travel to round up a team and then just all around the scheme just for hours running about daft playing football. And you just obviously naturally that way inclined anyway. But I just think of the amount of hours I was outside. You know, I'm a big believer in the hours that you put into the game, you know, the whole 10,000 hour theory. And I think if I look back on my childhood, I was racking up hours and hours of Thing, touches with the ball and playing with the ball. I knew if there wasn't a game there with my close mates, I could go somewhere else. There'd be another game, there'd be another game. There was about four different places I could go to get a game with about five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten lads. There was that's how many kids were out playing. Yeah, I've, I've spoken this podcast a few times about my path and and the advice that I got from my dad and my parents was, you know, not to kind of sign with a Scottish club, to keep my options open to go and experience different things in Scotland and, of course, in England eventually when the opportunities arose. Now, we all know you signed for Manchester United, but before we get to that, did, did you have the options? Did you look around? Did you um, Was it the same kind of advice from your parents to just keep that open or were you always with the intention that you were going to go and play in, in the English Premier League? No, without a doubt, the same, same sort of mindset with my dad as well. I think initially I went to Hearts at about 10, and then um, uh, Celtic and Rangers at about eleven, and my dad was we were the same. Like you know, it was like, don't get well, don't get signed up anywhere. You know, don't get yourself tied down. Manchester United were interested at twelve, Newcastle. So all of a sudden, I've started to get all these options. But at the beginning, you're just playing for the love of the game. And thankfully, I did listen to my dad a lot. My dad guided me a lot in, in those days, really, because I was just a young boy who loved playing football and would turn up to any trace training session with any team, go in on my own, didn't care, you know, just jump into it and loved it. But my dad probably had a better idea of how the training was or how the coaching was. And he guided me in that respect because he'd be at the side of the pitch watching the sessions. I always look back on it as well as an interesting thing. I used to train two nights a week with Celtic and two nights a week with Rangers. And at that time, both clubs had a completely different philosophy, so to yeah. speak. Rangers was very much down the Dutch school at that time of passing routines and things like that and Celtic was all about the technical ability, the little touches and the little turns and all the little skills so while one group of lads would say would be signed for Celtic and getting two nights training a week and the other group would be signed for Rangers or whatever getting two nights, I was getting four nights a week training and getting two different sort of philosophies so looking back it was probably a big advantage at the time yeah, getting the balance of the, the, the different theories and different ways of playing the game, which was, again, something that I really loved about that experience, you know, going to Villa, going to Chelsea. And for me, the big thing about it was, you know, maybe I'm like the cock of the north, think I'm the man in, in central Scotland. And then, you know, I go to Chelsea for a game at the weekend and I'm, I see this boy from London who's the same age as me, who's like 10 times better than me. And for me, it was always a realisation to come home and it gave me that spark to like, okay, that's the standard. There's where I need to get to. Was it the same for you or did you find wherever you were going, you were the, the top man? You know what? I actually found the opposite. So I remember going to United at the age of 12 and tying in the same thing as you. The night before the hotel, you got boys for Newcastle, sound, you know, 
for us. And then all these London boys come in and they're talking and giving it the big end. And I'm thinking, <laughs> good deals in that. And I'm thinking, these guys must be some players, you know what I mean? And we got to the game the next day and I actually don't know why. I found it easier. I found it less, maybe technically, yeah, but I found it less intense. There was less tackles, less aggression, less parents on the sideline shouting stuff like smack them and do them and things like that. So I don't know, for me, I found it not easier. I, I found it easier to play, but I understood that there was a technical level there. And that's maybe, I was probably more averse to playing winning football and more like a men's sort of game. Yeah. Where I was with my voice and give me the ball and show me what I could do. But what I did recognise, a bit like what you're saying, technically those lads were very, very good, but they didn't have the other side of the game, so to speak. So in some ways I found it easier, but I did recognise that, yeah, I've got to do a lot more technically here if I want it. If I want to improve, but I did feel at that time I felt more than comfortable and, and a bit like not the top man, but I felt like, yeah, there's not much here that really worries me, so to speak. I found a lot of the better players were in Scotland actually, and looking back, which is which is something that I find strange that maybe that progression didn't continue. Yeah, I think that we got a lot of motivation from um, each other in Scotland. The, the, the competitiveness was really high, wasn't it? And then you would. We would get that kind of... We played years up, didn't we, back then, a lot more. I don't think we do that enough these days. And Obviously, I'm in Canada, so it might be completely different in the UK. But, you know, I would, like, play for Rangers and I'd be playing in a game, a Sunday kind of bounce game against the, say, I'm U15, the U16s. And Jimmy Gibson, I don't know if you remember Jimmy, but he's a player. And Jimmy would be playing against me in the centre midfield and he'd be just giving me the runaround. And again, I'd I'd get that realisation... I've got a long way to go here. So I think there was always that grounding in Scotland and that competitiveness that allowed us to excel in England when we went there. Would you agree with that? No, totally. And I had the same thing. I remember we used to go, we used to play on the, and before the game at Ibrox on the Astro outside and there'd be yeah. like fans there watching. And same thing, you you go up and play with the older boys. I remember um, Stephen Hughes giving me the run around. Don't know if he's a year or two older than me. And I just couldn't get near him. Yeah. And as you say, it gives you that realisation. It's good to push yourself because it's good it's good to be the best player and to be the dominant one on the pitch and to be, you know, the, the best player in the schoolyard, so to speak. But that only takes your development so far. It's good to have a realisation that, no, I've got a lot more to do. Playing with older players, your first touch has got to be better because they're quicker and stronger. You learn to develop other skills. So I think the balance of both, as you say, is fantastic. And I was always pushed against older players. And then sometimes you aren't the best player on the pitch. And sometimes it is a reality check to make you go back and work harder. People don't realise... The gap in a year is massive at that age. I'm actually a big advocate. I can't believe we don't work every six months. And I think a lot of players get missed in the system because of, just because of how, when they were born, basically they don't get picked up. So I'm a big believer in actually splitting the age groups. And then from there, you can mix and mash and push people all over the place. Because I do think we miss a lot of talent. Yeah, the, the first time that, I think the first, I mean, I've had too many boys. I think my memory's maybe going a little bit, but correct me if I'm wrong. But the first time you went to Man United, I think I was there with you, and it was the only time I went. Uh, but it was me, you, and Michael Stewart. I don't know what age we were, but I remember we were pretty young, and we got the train with, with Scout Andy Perry at Waverley Station, and then we went to Manchester. And, uh, and and again, that was probably the first time that you and I spent some time together. Talk about that experience. Let's share some stories there, because I remember it vividly being one of the the most important weekends in my, my kind of youth career, even though I didn't sign for Man United, even though my opportunities or, or the times I went back there, lesson for me. Uh, talk about that experience, because it was absolutely incredible, wasn't it? 
No, it was, and I do remember that actually, because obviously for me, this is the first time I've gone to an English team. Not only, it's not like a, it's Man United as well. Yeah. You know, I've gone from Hearts, where you're like, you know, I, I, at that point, I'm just like going along on the journey. I'm not really thinking about it too much. I think that was the first time where somebody, coach pulled me in and said, like, you know, Andy Perry, you know, and they want to go, you to go down to Manchester United. And that was the first time I went, oof, that's, you know, that's big, that's the next level type thing. So. At that point as well, remember, I do remember you and Mikey being a couple of years older than me and me probably just being an annoying young, young time. <laughs> so I don't know, you'd be 14 maybe with a couple of years. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I thought I was younger than that. I thought you were younger than that. But yeah, I guess you, you're no better. But I guess you're right. I was maybe 14, 15. Mikey yeah. and I were the same age. Um, but I, I just remember getting there and, you know, down in the train, Andy was a great guy. He, he loved yeah. his football, didn't he? And he would talk constantly to us about the game and little little tidbits and, and stuff like that. And uh, and when we get there, we're at the cliff, and and you know we go. I don't know if we went together or in ones or whatever, but we go upstairs and we go into the, the great man's office, Sir Alex Ferguson's. And I always remember two things on the door. He had the, the plaque that said, "I'm still the boy for Govan." And I remember seeing that and thinking, wow, this guy's like still still pretty much remembers where he's from. And we get inside and I remember him talking to us. I think we were together because he talked to us individually and he knew everything about our youth careers. He knew we scored a hat trick the weekend before and who we had coming up and what we had been doing back in Scotland. And I was amazed, Fletch. I had never experienced that level, uh, I, I guess, detail from a guy who was obviously far above an under-12 and two under-14 players. But that was one of his greatest strengths, wasn't it? Kind of knowing everything about everybody and making you feel very special. Well, without a doubt, and I remember that because I actually had the mind night awake at the time, a blue and white one, probably just yeah. trying to press a little bit as well. Yeah. But I actually genuinely had that uh, talk because I got from my 12th birthday and it was still the picture that resonates somewhere around the internet. And that was that day. Remember the three of us in the office after a training session at the cliff or a game at the cliff, we got taken up to meet him. And as you say, that was a theme throughout. The manager knew everything about every player. He knew every youth team player's name, right down to that age sort of age group. He knew about their family. He knew about their backgrounds. He wanted to know these things about players because that was, that's how he signed these players. He wanted to know their backgrounds. He wanted to know about their parents. He wanted to get to meet them. And to, for somebody at that elk at that time to go out of his way to speak to three Scottish lads who were miles away from any even potentially being footballers at that time never mind playing for Man United they're the small details that people don't realise what makes them such a great manager yeah and everybody has that story it's it's not like we were anything really special yeah we were talented lads for Scotland but there was kids from all over the UK that were getting that same experience with Sir Alex so you know again well, wasn't it just because we were Scottish? No. Yeah. Was, you know, there was three of us were probably brought up because of Andy Perry. He probably hadn't seen Andy for a while, but he was doing this with boys from Ireland and yeah. and from London. He was meeting and finding out about all these boys from a young age and being involved in the process of their journey um, to making it as academy player. And another one of the academies that you visited was, was the one that I was at more prominently in Newcastle United. Now, I can remember you coming down a lot. Again, another terrific scout and Scott Gibson, who was, was very prominent in our youth careers uh, growing up, me, you, Gary, and, and the rest of the guys. And you were coming down to Newcastle a lot. Scott was, was one of the best scouts in Scotland in terms of the touch points and the details and the, the, the kind of making you feel special, wasn't he? Yeah. And 
I remember he was, he loved you. He loved us, but he loved you. And he was trying so hard to recruit you to Newcastle. You were down there often. Um, let's talk about the days a little bit and, and what that was like. I mean, we need to remember at Newcastle, we look at it now in 2020 and we know they were never a size of Manchester United, but they were competing with Manchester United on the field. So it was a big place to go, wasn't it? And it was a club that everyone felt had a, a really strong future at the top of the English game. Well, that's what I mean. People always ask me, there's this thing comes up, so Alex Ferguson tells the story about how he got me to sign for my United. I'm yeah. sure that eventually. But Newcastle were going toe-to-toe with United at the time for the Premier League. They were arguably the second, second biggest club in, in England at the time. Yeah. Got the closeness to Scotland, but you do feel Northern. You do feel that the Northern... People, a lot of people from the northeast and the northwest, but the further north you go, they do feel more like Scottish, you know, it yeah. feels not that too far away from home. I always had the thing about going to London like it was miles away from home. Absolutely loved my time in Newcastle. And as you say, Scott Gibson was a proper character as well and made you feel like a million dollars. You say he loved me. He used to talk about you and Gaz to me, <laughs> he loved you. So I had this impression that it was all about Stevie and Gary Caldwell. <laughs> Scott Gibson's boys, but you know, he, he loved us and he was proud of us as well. Do you know when we'd go down and play well, it, like you could see the pride bouncing off and we'd probably given it to people when we were there. Our Scottish boys will come and show you how it's done and that. And we used to feel like a million dollars, but I loved it. Great club, great people. Obviously going down and knowing you, Gaz and Kersey were there. There was that little bit of connection to home. You used to look after me. I used to feel like I knew somebody there. I loved my time in the club and couldn't speak, when I was there, I couldn't speak highly of it. And as, it. as it got closer to making that decision, it was like so close between Newcastle and Man United um, for a number of reasons, just mainly because of how much I really enjoyed it there. Yeah, I, I guess that was something that Scott did so well because he made it feel like a family, didn't he? And especially for us Scots who were, you know, like you said, not too far from home, but still away from home. Yeah. And and that's what he was great at. He was great at building that kind of spirit amongst us, making us all want to be be in the same place. And I remember the stories that you're saying where we'd be at Benton or, or wherever up at, in Durham back in the day and we'd be playing in a game and, you know, he'd, he'd come up to you if your game was finished. He's like, you need to get over here and see what Fletch is doing to this team, you know. And you go on that. Gaz has just scored a penalty. He paused in the middle and he put it in the corner. The details were like flowing around and the pride and the smile on his face was, was so evident, wasn't it? Well, that's what I mean. I went to the Mill Cup. I think I went with the under-14s when I was young. I remember you, captain in Newcastle. And, like, I'm looking up to you because I'm, like, 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 I'm sort of, like, getting bits and pieces of games because I'm younger than everybody in this Newcastle team in the Mill Cup, which is one that was the best youth competition at the time. Yeah. But like you're saying, um, Scott would be like, right, Stevie's playing in under Let's get over and watch him. And you the captain's armband, running the show, taking the penalties. That's the first time I've seen a centre-half take penalties. I'm like, what's going on here? They're <laughs> back there, heading balls at the box. Big Steve is marching up and taking penalties and that. Scott Gibson on the sidelines, loving it. And now they're, that, they're great memories from childhood because that's what football's about. And he gave you that platform to enjoy yourself and express yourself. And you felt that confidence boost from him because he was so proud of you and the fact that he found these boys and they were in these tournaments and they were down in Newcastle and not only were they playing well but I felt like we were dominating we were dominating characters at that time as well yeah we were we definitely were and now I have to get to a very dark weekend for Newcastle United but I'm going to tell you my timeline on it it started maybe it was a Friday and, and Gibson's phoning us up saying 
Fletch is signing. He's coming to Newcastle. He's signing for us Monday. It'll be it'll be sorted. So this is Friday afternoon. We're excited. The buzz is going around the, the, the digs. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's excited to have you come and join us when you leave school. And before we know it, Monday's here and Fletch has done a U-turn. <laughs> he's signing with Man United. Probably the, the smartest U-turn you ever made in your career, mate. But he's signing with Man United. And I have my idea of the story, but I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. Tell me what happened that weekend. Yeah, well, so listen, it's decision time. Yeah. And, you know, it's tough. And you're thinking, at this point as well, in my head, you're looking at the Man United. At this point, Alex Ferguson was initially going to retire in 2001. So I think right. it was 2009, 2000. So in your head, you're going, you know, look at that midfield, Beckham, Scholes, Keane, Giggs, you know, they're going to be there. For, and people are telling you this as well from yeah. you and from other clubs. You know, Alex Ferguson's not going to be there. And, and I'm thinking in my head, I'm closer to home for Newcastle. I can get home quicker, all these little things. And I really enjoyed it there. And I really enjoyed it at Man United, but it was something I really, really enjoyed more. Probably the lads and the fact that you were there as well. I felt like I enjoyed it at Man United, but I more enjoyed the club rather than the dressing room and the lads, so to speak. Whereas at Newcastle, I enjoyed the club and all the lads and the atmosphere around the place and things like that. So I had the decision, I decided, right, I'm going to go to Newcastle. So fine, mum and dad pick up the phone to Scott and Andy Perry. And next minute, the house phone rings and my sister answers it and Darren answers for you, all right? And it's Alex Ferguson on the phone. <laughs> and he's going absolutely mental down. <laughs> like, Not the last thing you heard that, I'll bet. No, but I'm 15. And <laughs> I'm like, like, mouth open, no speaking. And he's just going like absolutely bananas down the phone at me. And funny enough, my mum grabs the phone because she sees me like just like going chop white and like shot. Yeah. And she listens for a second and she goes, Don't phone this house again. Slams the phone down. <laughs> That's brilliant. I don't care who you are. And I'm there just like, what is going on? And next minute, the manager, five minutes later, he phones back and he's dead apologetic. And he's like, I'm really sorry, Mrs. Fletcher. And he's like, I'm coming up. And my mum's gone. Mum's probably looking around the house going, she's not on the housework or stuff like that. <laughs> oh, you're no. And I'm like, oh, no, what's happening? So anyway, they agree that me and my dad go down to, to Manchester to meet Alice Ferguson and to see what's going on, really. And I don't know whether that's maybe just what it took for me. I felt like at that point, everyone else was going all out to sign me. I felt like Man United thought I'd already signed. And at this point, it was the first time I was taken around the Carrington training ground. And I did say to Alice Ferguson, listen, you know, you're potentially retiring. And I remember the words he said to me, he's like, my job is to do the best for Manchester United until the day I leave this club. And I want the best young players in the country here. And you're going to get an opportunity to play in Man United's first team. And if you're good enough, you'll get a chance. If you get an offer to be a car apprentice, you go to the best car manufacturer, blah, blah, blah. And he just says, this is a place for you to be, do you know what I mean? And I had a sort of feeling that my dad was leaning towards that as well. So we went home and thought about that and, I think just that last-minute validation from Alex Ferguson, somebody like that, to go with that effort. And I think deep down, my dad maybe recognised that I was maybe going to Newcastle more because it was closer to home. Maybe I was having those sort of feelings. And maybe I just wanted that last-minute like push from Manchester United to really want me, so to speak. And, yeah, we went to his house, and he claims that he, beat, he let me beat him at snooker because he's never been <laughs> signed the deal. That's the story he tells. But, listen... Um, eventually I signed for my United and as you say looking back it was probably the right decision 
No, it was absolutely the right decision, and and it shows you the the level that these guys will go to for for the good of their club. That's why they're they're legends of the game, and we know the stories. But again, the sacrifice that a fifteen year old boy makes when it is easier to go to Newcastle, he's got more of a comfort zone there. It's only an hour and a half tour drive back to his home, but he goes that extra bit and he makes a decision to go to the the best environment. So again. You know that the, these these are the kind of the decisions we make as kids. As kids, we're just little boys, aren't we? But we feel like we're we're making these. You know, we're we're adults, so we're getting into the big game. But we're still just kids. And so, again, parents are a big part of that. But the maturity again of you at fifteen to kind of see that and make that decision was was really uh, prevalent. I think. I mean, do you, do you remember like being conscious about that and? And, you know, and again, disappointing people as well because Newcastle thought that they had your signature. But you've got to do the right thing for you at that time and your family. No, without a doubt. And it's so hard because, like, people say you think about it for a long time and it comes to the point where you've got to make a decision. And, and to be honest, you just make, like, you're, just, you're a kid. Yeah. And you sort of, like, go, right, okay, I've got a couple of days to think about this. You should have been thinking about it for months. But, you, yeah. you know, you're still trying to play football and do your bits and pieces and stuff like that. I do think back and think it probably played out the right way. I think deep down I always wanted to go to Man United, but it was just those last minute and probably nerves. I think they just needed that extra little bit to sort of convince me. Not, not that Man United should be convincing a 15-year-old, but that's sort of what it's like because it's a massive decision for, for young kids' lives and things like that. But once I'd made the decision, that was it. And that was it. I was, I'm leaving home. No problem. It's all about football. And that's what I tried to do. I just tried to block out as I'm going here to give it the best shot to be a professional footballer, to play for Man United, to not only achieve the dream, but to achieve the dream for me and my family. So I went there with a mindset of not only doing it for myself, but doing it for my whole family to achieve something special. Yeah, uh, something very special. And and I want to ask you about something that I actually never knew about until I did a bit of research before this interview, but you were destined to become Manchester United's youngest ever player. I can't believe that. That is absolutely incredible and it was just a loophole that prevented that from happening the fact you were still a schoolboy, you were still at school this was in the 99-2000 the season at the end of the season a game against Villa you were meant to play in it and you didn't like, explain to us the lead up to that and, and the trust again shown in you by the manager to want to get you out there and, and, and get you that appearance was absolutely immense no, exactly. And it's like, so I go full time six months earlier. So I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm 15 when I leave to go to United. I turn six. So I go into January 2000 when they moved to Carrington. I'm 15. I turn 16 in the February. Yeah. And so I'm six months, you know, I'm young, the youngest there by far in the youth team dressing room. And from there, I start off the first couple of youth games and play really well and score. I get fast-tracked into the reserves. I remember playing the first reserve team game away to Everton. It was basically like a first team game. I thought so sharp, Paul scored. I'm playing against Gaza and I play really well. And then I play another reserve team game and I'm playing against Liverpool again. It was against Jamie Redknapp. TT. It was me against Jamie Redknapp in midfield. I'm 16. Again, I'm playing really well. So I'm having this journey where I'm getting some bits of reserve games at 16 and I'm like, not only am I holding more, I'm actually like playing really well. And it comes to the, the reserves travel to play Antwerp um, first team, their last pre-season game. And this was the week, the midweek before the United's um, final league game against Aston Villa. They'd already won the league. So we go over and play Antwerp's first team, and I'm 16 playing reserves, and I have an absolute blinder. 
I think the rest of the boys in the reserves are just thinking it's end of season, like that's the yeah. season. And I'm treating it like the World Cup final because I'm playing against Antwerp's first team in a, in a small crowd in a stadium. And again, I have a great game. So I think off the back of that, the manager's probably gone to Nick Fielding, the reserve manager, who, who played well, who, you know, who performed. Yeah. And by me, Mikey Stewart and Danny Higginbottom and a few others travelled. And then the rumour started circling that the manager was looking to put me on the bench. So I remember the shirt, there was a Fletcher 44, number 44 shirt. <laughs> And then I think they inquired into it, but because technically I was still meant to be in school in Scotland and I wasn't meant to be full-time schoolboy till that summer, that July, but because you do your exams earlier in Scotland and if you've got a job to go to, so to speak, they let you leave school early. So I, got, I was allowed to leave school early in Scotland, but technically I was still a Scottish schoolboy and I couldn't play in the Premier League. And, and I don't know for sure, but there was rumours of it happening. And then I go and break my foot that summer and don't play for... 15 months. Oh, just shows you eh, the, the opportunity, how things can be so different, you know, if, if you get that window to grab that chance, eh, and, and, and some, fortunately for you, you know, you, you, you more than make up for it, but for some, it never comes back. Injury comes yeah. in, they grow, they change, something happens, manager uh, gets sacked or, or moves on. That window opportunity is so slim, isn't it? You must have been disappointed, I guess, but obviously very confident the fact that you were 16 and you were, you were right on the edges of the Man United first team with, with some of the Galaxy superstars that they had there at the time. No, exactly. And, like, you know, I'm 16, I was blown out. I didn't even think too much about it. Listen, training with the first team, the odd times I trained with the first team, it was tough. The level was unbelievable and you recognise that. But I was more than holding my own in the reserves and I was probably just flying confidence-wise. I was fit, I was young, I was carefree. I was determined. I was just, you know, whatever challenge was put in front of me, I was just sort of like passing it and getting confidence. You know, when you play against Paul Gascoigne when you're 16 in the reserves and you have a good game, and then these games are on MUTV as well, so your mum and dad are watching you, going home and watching them, and then the next time you're playing against Liverpool and Robbie Fowler's playing and you're right up against Jamie Redknapp in midfield, and again, you're holding your own and have a good game. Confidence you boost you get for that and the odd times training with the first team and then I go away, I said, I go away with Scotland under 16s and under 17s and break my foot that summer in Faroe Islands, turn, heard it crack and that ended up being a fifth metatarsal that never healed and combination of me rushing back and not knowing how to be injured, I'd never been injured before and I end up being out for 15 months and then off the back of coming back for that, I'm getting double hernias and my ankles are going and Basically, I'm just like injured all the time and, and miles away from that 16-year-old that's potentially got a chance to play in the first team. Then your journey becomes a little bit different because technically you're not developing. But I do remember the manager saying to me, you can still develop, even though you're not developing physically and technically, watch the first team. Watch, study, go to the games and study the players in your position and just watch them. Forget the ball, forget the game, forget the atmosphere. Study Roy Keane, study Paul Scholes, study Nicky Butt, study David Beckham, just watch what they do. And I actually just did that, and I felt like I learned so much in that time period, even though I was not improving technically because I physically couldn't train. I had an interview recently with a TFC player called Jonathan Azorio, who had a really tough year in 2017 where he had to sit at the team. The TFC signed a guy called Victor Vasquez, a Spaniard, played for Barcelona and Club Bruges. Really excellent player but he talks about how that spell on the sidelines allowed him to develop and become a better player for when his chance came again and again it's something that maybe we don't even appreciate as professionals but certainly the fans don't see at the time 
that spell on the sidelines can be just as important, can't it, as, as when you're in the team and you're flying along. I want to ask you, though, it must have been really difficult for you mentally in that period, away from home, still a young lad, still still basically a boy. Uh, was there some tough moments there where you were you were kind of feeling down, feeling a little bit um, like confidence had gone, I, I assume? Yeah, definitely down because I'm injured and I'm potentially going to be my age youngest ever player. And then you start thinking, right, okay, well, next season, you know, you're, you're thinking League Cup games and stuff like that. You know, the man yeah. thinking, you see all these things pass by and you see this 10 weeks where you get yourself fit and then you break down again, first game, refracture your foot. The best part, again, I go back to the manager. The manager used to pay for my flights and send me home. The club used to pay for my flights and send me home. The manager used to send me home for weeks at a time. Because he knew, what's the point of me being down the road? Uh, I just had a three little sister. I just had a young little sister born as well. Yeah. And he used to just constantly send me home. He used to ask me, when was the last time you were home? I'd say, yeah, it's probably been about three weeks. He's right, right. Go in and see the women in the office. You're going home this weekend. And he did that all the time. He, he had this thing that he didn't want me to go longer than three weeks, four weeks without going home. And sometimes he meant flying up on a Saturday and back down on Monday morning, but yeah. just get yourself home. And sometimes he sent me up for a week or two. So... That helped me a lot. And again, I'm, I just, I just, good family around me and good mindset that I eventually had to just accept what I was in that situation I was in. And you've just got to be, take the positives out of it, Stevie, as I was saying. And you can't let yourself get dragged down. I'm a big football's full of disappointment. I think my journey up until then, I never experienced a disappointment because you football, you're the best player. You're going to all these places, you're winning cups, you're playing for Scotland schoolboys on the telly. You're getting a man in age, you're playing the reserves. The reality of football is there's more disappointments than there is good times for a lot for most players. Injuries, loss of form, contracts, you know, fans, you know, so much disappointment in the game. And it's probably the biggest thing I learned at that point was dealing with disappointment is you can't let it hold you down. You've got to just put it to the side and, and drive forward. That's absolutely fascinating to hear you say that. A, a guy who's won five Premier League titles, FA Cups, Champions Leagues, you know, the success that you've had. And, and you're right, you're, you're bang on. and you know, I've had limited success, but I, I've managed to pick up trophies in my time as a player. And there's so much adversity, isn't there? There's so many yeah. moments where you're doubting yourself. You're, you're, you're a nightmare at home. You're worried about playing on a Saturday. You're at the team, you're in the team, you're trying to hold your place. There's this mental side to the game that, that people don't quite recognise you're injured. Maybe the worst moments is when you're injured and you're sitting on the sidelines. And uh, the whole time you have to keep yourself singly focused and on track and, and saying to yourself, right, if I do the little things well, if I work hard, if I do my rehab, if I go to bed at the right time, I, you know, I, 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 I stop going out, I don't go out at the wrong times. They're the things that really matter, aren't they? And you've worked with the best, so you know you must see the consistency in that all over when you think of some of the great pros that you've you've played with and against. And that's what I learned from in that respect. That you like, you know, disappointment. You can if you have disappointment lingering around you too long, you won't get anywhere. And every time I was disappointed, I'd have that one night, and I'd say to myself, right, you know, you're speaking to yourself. You're going, right, that's it. No excuses. Go and work the hardest in training the next day. Go and show the manager. Go and show whoever it is. Don't let anybody drag you down. And just having that inner confidence and that inner belief in yourself at all times. And sometimes it's a, you, you, you've got to think of yourself, not better than you are, but you've got to believe in, if you don't believe in yourself, 
you'll never do it. Do you know what I mean? It's great when other people believe in you, that gives you the boost and that helps you along the way. But the biggest person is yourself. You've got to believe in yourself and go and show, and whether you do that by being the most dedicated, by practicing the hardest, by training the hardest, by shouting for the ball more when you're on the pitch and showing yourself, there's a number of ways you can do that. And that's the way I used to always challenge myself. If I wasn't in the team, the most important game for me was the next training session because that's my World Cup final. I've got to get in the team. It's not the game at the weekend that I'm trying to prepare for. No, it's the next training session. If I'm injured, I'm going to dedicate myself to get fit. I'm going to rest. I'm going to recover. I'm not going to go out this weekend because I've got a big game. I want to be in the best all the time, constantly. And It's a constant battle and challenge, as you said, that players go through in their own minds. The mental side of the games way more percentage than anybody could ever imagine. It's a constant thing for footballers. It's easy when you're riding the crest of the wave of confidence and playing well. That's when it's easy. And that's when you've got to let yourself... For me, I always tried to keep on a level keel. I never got too carried away with the good times and I never got too low with the bad times. I tried to keep a level of consistency because for me, the margins between a good game and a bad game are nothing. And I recognise that by watching games back. Somebody would say, you're brilliant today and I'd watch it back and go, man, it was all right. And then somebody would say you were shocking today and I'd watch it back and go, wasn't it that bad? It was all right. The margins are so fine. I decided no, to get carried away with it either way and that helped me massively. As a defender, that's so true. I mean, I, I can think of some of the, the best games of my career were in defeats. I actually had a game at Old Trafford. I don't know if you were playing, but it was for Wigan. We got two men sent off. And I was playing Ash. Normal. Every time the ball came in the box, I think Raphael crossed that about 50 times that game. And I managed to keep getting it out. We lost two or three now, but I had one of the games. And other times, I'd get a clean sheet and I'd be so average and I'd come off, go, I got away with that one there. You know, I got got so lucky on a, a number of occasions, just wasn't it myself. But you're right, the even kills the important part. You're, you never get carried away. You never think you're the best and you never really think you're the worst. And I always remember a story that, that Walter once told us where Walter Smith, Rangers manager, had two uh, back pages in his, in his house framed. One was a reporter saying that he was basically Rangers' worst manager ever in the world. <laughs> and the other one was saying he was the best. And he said, I look at it every day and I realise I'm somewhere in the middle. It's that consistency that's so important, isn't it, for, for the best professional football players? No, without a doubt. And it is that case of don't getting carried away with good performances. Don't get me wrong, it's good to have that confidence of them. But some people can get carried away and then they lose themselves. And at the same time, when you have a bad game, it isn't as bad as you think. And you're only as good as, you, only as, good as your last game. It holds true in football. It's one of the truest things in football. You get judged on the next game all the time. And as you, another great manager, Walter Smith, you know how lucky we were to have the privilege. Yeah. And a big influence on my first season in Manchester United as well, because he comes in as assistant manager and was a massive impact on, on a number of people around the club at that time. He really gives a real boost towards the end of that season. And in the changing room there, you know, so many strong characters. Who was the kind of major influences for you in that Manchester United changing room at the early stages, then I guess even all the way through your, your Man United career? Well, first and foremost, Roy Keane springs to mind. Now, Roy was the most dominant personality in that dressing room by far. And it was a dressing room full of personalities. And the biggest thing in, for me in the beginning of that was, not that I was louder in, but I like to stay in the dressing room. I've seen a lot of young players come in and couldn't wait to get changed and get out quickly. For me, again, from Alex Ferguson, I used to study, study these players, watch what they do, watch how they prepare on and off the pitch. So I used to sit in the dressing room and it's one of those, you know, speak when you're spoken to, but you're constantly watching and learning. And they were all great with me. I sat in between Rio and with Van Nistelrooy, Van Nistelrooy, great guy. 
and listen, there was loads of great guys, but Roy Keane was a different class for me. He was hard on me. He was tough on me. He was demanding of me. But it was because he wanted the best for me and he recognised something in me. And deep down, and he actually said it, it was because he liked me. He was hard on me because he wanted me to do well. And it was just his way of challenging me and making me realise what it takes to be a Manchester United player. And he knew you could take that, I guess. He knew that you were mentally tough enough to kind of take the criticism and the good points and, and, and keep working hard, I suppose. No, without a doubt. People then always say, like, you know, if he spoke to me 10 times, eight of them were positives. Yeah. Just remember the two times where he's, like, had a go at you. And he's having a go at you for, like, the smallest detail and he's firing the ball into you and testing your touch and snarling at you and making sure you're focused and, you know... Being on time was being late. You know, if I came five minutes before training started, he'd have a go at me. You need to be here half an hour before it started. And I'm going, I'm late, I'm early. <laughs> you know, looking at my phone in the dressing room. If I looked at my phone in the dressing room, you know, focused on training, do you know what I mean? And I didn't do anything wrong, but his standards were like through the roof, do you know what I mean? But listen, it made me 100%. And I recognised that I seen it as a challenge and somebody, a great leader and captain, and somebody I was inspired by, and it definitely made me and molded me 100%. The combination of him, Sir Alex Ferguson, and my dad are probably the three biggest influences on my career. Roy Keane is, was a hero of mine. He was a guy that I watched from afar. I loved him at Forest. I remember when he played right back at Man U, and I, I used to talk about him, and everyone would say, I, you know, he's not that good. And then eventually he became the Roy Keane that we all remember. And I got to work with him at Sunderland for three or four months and ah, I don't know how to explain this I did not have a good relationship with him in the end but he was a guy who I thought had so much to offer the game he, he was he could be so fantastic in meetings and uh, on the training ground everywhere you could imagine but he had this mist that came over him that just clouded his, his judgment and his um his way of putting his message over, I guess, and, and it became almost incoherent. I'm assuming that he was more confident and, and, and more kind of stable, I guess, when he was like a captain and a player than he was as a manager because there was times where he really lost that dressing room. But did everyone there have the complete respect for him or was there even times there where he would kind of lose it and people would wonder where he was going? Obviously, there was the one time where it ended up resulting in leaving in the club. Right. That was the one time I remember. The rest of the time, honestly, he was the best captain ever. Yeah. He, was, uh, he set the standards and his performances um, um, with his voice and everything. And all the players in that dressing room loved him. You know, and without a doubt, the best captain, the most inspirational captain that I've ever, ever played with. And what an unbelievable player as well. You know, you think about keen people think straight away about leadership, tackling, you know, all that. His first touch was immaculate. His range of passing was unbelievable. You know, he fired the ball in and his consistency levels every day, you know. And I, I can't speak highly of him because my experiences of him are so positive. I see him even now and he's brilliant when I'm out walking the dog. I've got a lot of time for him. He's somebody that helped me a lot. And as you say, his managerial, managerial career is probably inconsistent so to speak and it is a shame because you say you lose so much about the game and hopefully he gets an opportunity and we see a more you know rounded manager because it's a tough game as well the management and you've probably experienced him in his first role as a manager probably new to him and he's probably evolved so much from that and hopefully he gets another chance and we can see that that side of him that knows everything and can be inspirational and can be a fantastic manager as he was a captain. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, the 2008-2009 season, uh, you're, you're having a brilliant season. You guys are one of the best teams in the world. Um, and you're playing in the semi-final of the Champions League and you get a, a ridiculous red card. I remember watching it live. I was you know, rooting for you, of course, and I couldn't believe that he gave you the red card. It was, it was an awful decision. And, and you know, you're missing the Champions League final. It must have been a... And an immense disappointment at a time when you were probably playing the best football of your career. No, without a doubt, you're right. It was massively disappointing. I was flying at the time. Um, my performances had, you know, starting to hit my peak, really. And, you know, the, the years of building up and finally finding myself as, like, you know, one of the main men in the Man United midfield. And performances are good. And to be sent off from a wrong decision, we'd obviously won the Champions League the the previous season and I'd picked up a couple of injuries that year and I was in and out of the team and I was on the bench for the final also it's unbelievable that we won it so that season I'm thinking I'm getting back to the Champions League final we'll win again and I'm in the team and you know yeah. we're cruising the game as well in hindsight people say to me should you just let them score and things like that and I'm going we trained all week on staying with my job was staying with Fabregas staying with runners I made a great tackle for a split second, he got away from me, but we're 4-0 up at the time as well. Like There's nothing left in the game. <sighs> Look, I probably became a better player by not playing in the game. People at Man United always say, well, if I was there and fans say, if I had played, I don't think it's necessarily because of my, my individual performance, although maybe my style at that time, maybe City playing against the Barcelona. I think it was a knock-on effect of the number of changes we had in the team as a result of me not playing. And that final was definitely winnable at the time. Barcelona, that was the beginning of them, really. And even watching the final, we had lots of opportunities in the game. And it's just a massive disappointment because that was my dream to play in the Champions League final. And again, my dad, I spoke to my dad after the game and he literally just said to me, people were talking about appeals and that, they'll overturn it. My dad said to me straight away, Blunt, forget about it, it's done. We're not going to overturn it. You need to get your head on now winning the league. I think we still had to win the league. We're still yeah. Arsenal to win the league and he said Champions League's done for you now let that go with the rest of the lads you'll, you'll get there again but next season your job now is to make sure that you win the league and it was a good bit of advice because he was right nothing I could have done with it at that point and my focus was then to concentrate on winning the league and thankfully we did that and that final in Rome was was a tough one for the team but um, I've been fortunate enough to hear you talk in the past about playing against the likes of Xavi and Iniesta particularly Messi as well of course what, what you know? What, it's a crazy question because what what was their strengths? We all know what their strengths were, but how, how was it playing against the guys, trying to get near them, trying to kind of get your foot in and, and dominate them? Must have been some of the hardest challenges that you had in football. No, without a doubt. And the people talk about tiki taki. It's not tiki taki. It's, it's it's passing the ball at the right angle, at the right speed, to the right part of the body at the right time. It's it's those details, and it's like any Esther and that. I talk about any Esther's ability to just suck you in, wait for you to commit, then pop it around you and he's away. You know, it's all about timing. That's not even skill. That is a skill, but no, it's not it's not a step over or a fancy yeah. skill. That's just immaculate timing of waiting for you to commit and sucking you in and then boom, boom, he's gone. Or even dribbling away from you, dribbling to keep possession. You know, we to think about dribbling as players dribbling, taking people on. Javi and Iniesta were dribbling forward, dribbling back, dribbling sideways to retain possession of the ball. Do you know what I mean? We forget that. We think dribbling is taking people on and doing a step over and getting across it. These guys were dribbling midfield when they're in a tight area to keep possession of the ball and then passing it. And it is just great players 
passing the ball at the right time to the right foot to the right space at the right way you do that three or four times it's amazing how quickly these gaps open up and that's why I experienced playing against them but I was getting that every day against Paul Scholes and Roy Keane and Trey yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean that was my challenge every day I was getting the run around every day but it's amazing <laughs> that you get up to that level or as close to it as possible some days you, you're like I'll never get to this level next days you get a confidence boost because you've done well but trust me, training at that level every day doesn't have to bring you on. I, I, met, uh, I went to New York one time to visit a good friend of mine, Carl Robinson, who's playing with the Red Bulls, and Thierry Henry was playing there at the time. And I spent a couple of hours with Thierry after training. He was great. He came right up to me. I thought, I'll never know who I am, but he probably men, men remembered the defender that he scored the other nine goals against. Or kicked once <laughs> <laughs> he comes over and we're having a chat and he, he took me around and honestly it was fascinating and, and one of the things he told me this is Thierry Henry remember and he said when he went to Barcelona he remembers he was nervous before training he says because he knew that if we gave the ball away you did, your team didn't get it back for two or three minutes some of the guys that were there and I, I just thought it was fascinating listening to in my opinion the best player in the world in the early 2000s talk about you know, these guys and, and, and training terms like you've just did there with Keenan Scholes and, and the, the guys at Manchester United. It's, it's, it's such a confidence builder or, or such a kind of uh, learning experience to train with these guys every day. It, it just takes your game on to another level, doesn't it? It does. And again, going back to training, honestly, Stevie, training was like World Cup final. Yeah. Lads were kicking lumps at each other. Cups did the manager encourage that? The manager encouraged like, you know, like, shouting and snarling at the ref and every decision. He loved it. They, nobody wanted to referee the games. Honestly, but we, he never picked the team either until an hour and a half before the game. So the Friday game, you're thinking, it's the day before a game, lads are kicking lumps at each other. Like an audition to play and competitiveness to win the game. And we always played in small, we always played 11 v 11, but on a really reduced pitch. So you're thinking and you're timing. Yeah. You're in the same positions as you play as we were going to play. The games at the weekend felt slower and you felt you had more time because we're playing 11 v 11 well, like, you know, world-class players and a tightest pitch, but it's all the same angles, all the same positions that you're receiving the ball. It's just that your thinking's got to be so much quicker. You've got to play one touch, got to be two touch. It's 100 mile an hour. And the manager used to sit at the sidelines and love it. He used to love the fact that we were competing to win, we were snarling, we were gutted when we got beat. The referees were getting a hard time and he used to sit back and love it because that was his thing. Of, and the man you bid it summed up brilliantly. He said he used to prepare for a game. When he came to Man United, he said he learned that he never had to switch off. So he never prepared for a game because he was always in that zone every day. Before he would have an easy day on a Monday and build himself up to playing at the weekend. In Man United, it was a case of you never, you never had to switch on because basically you were never switched off at any point. And that was just a theme throughout the club. And so his... Fergie's expertise must have been in, you know, the 22, 25 players were exceptional. And he's creating this uh, accountable and um, basically competitive, like you never believe, environment. Yeah. And then he's selecting a team. How does he keep everyone happy in that regard? How does he, yeah. he manage the egos, the personalities? He, that must have been his greatest gift. No, without a doubt. And he probably had his team picked. Yeah. You know what I mean? But we're ball playing to be at it. The manager was where he spoke to every player who didn't play. So if you're in the team the week before and you didn't play, he told you and spoke to you. He spent more time with the players who didn't play than the players who did play. 
because they the players who are playing when you're playing for Man United, you don't need you, that's invalidation. But when you're yeah. not, that's when the manager spent more time with you and constantly reiterated how important you were and how much you were going to be needed. You know, many times he said to me, oh, "You're second half of the season player, son. You're brilliant. That's what you come." <laughs> but that was that, and or like you're not going to play this game, but you're going to play in the next. You punt a game, and it's three games away. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm selected for that game, but I've been dropped for the other two. But in my head, I'm going, no, no, he needs me for that game. But they're just these wee little things, you know what I mean? And it works. And then the day it's Alex Ferguson, and he's honest with you, and you know he's there for you, and you know he believes in you. And as well, some of the times, it was just a case of form. If you were the form player at the time, you were in the team. And if you had the jersey, somebody else had to take it off you. And there was times where I had the jersey, and I was on form, and there was great players no playing. Paul Scholes, people like that, and you think, and they're coming up and shaking your hand, saying all the best, keep it going, Flex. And there's times where I'm not on the team because they've got the jersey and they're flying at the time, and that that was just our environment. And the biggest thing was the manager was honest with you, and you knew that you reiterated how much he needed you and how important you were, and that was good enough for me because it was always felt fair. That's that's the only thing you can be honest, isn't it? I mean, the players yeah. can't really come back to you when you're honest and you're you're open with them. You just you tell it how it is, and if you're playing well, you keep the shot. That's that's one of the best ways. But I've heard five or six players tell that same story where they tell you you're playing in three weeks' time. It happened to me once at Newcastle where I was dropped or whatever, and he said, you're playing, you're playing against Leverkusen in the Champions League. It was about three and a half weeks away, but I walk out of that room like feeling a million dollars. I know you do, though. Champions League. <laughs> but that's, it's so, but that's like it's such a small thing at the time. You don't yeah. think... I'm not playing in these two games. I'm thinking to myself, Alex Ferguson needs me for that game. So I'm going to get myself ready for that game. And I'm going to be, and he, trust me, when he said that, you definitely played as well. That never was, you know, oh, you're not playing. Yeah, yeah. No, no, that, you played in that game and you were ready for it. And it just worked. And he kept everyone happy. There's times when people weren't happy and moved on. But in the main, everyone respected that. And we're happy to be there. We were a team, and there was always another game as well. You maybe be coming on a sub, and then all of a sudden you're back in the team earlier than expected. Somebody gets injured, so we were always at it. And even right up till an hour and a half before kickoff, I actually liked it better that way because you're in the zone, ready for the game. I was prepared to play in the game, and everyone waited. They named the team. Boom! You got your disappointment. Bang! We're back at it the next day. A lot of players, when you pick the team on the Friday, they've switched off by the time game comes and. and not even really in the zone. We were all in the zone at all the times, ready to play. Yeah, um, fascinating stuff, mate. I, I want to touch on Scotland. We've been going for ages here, and it's, it's great speaking to you. I could talk to you for hours and hours. But I want to talk about Scotland in, in the beginning, I guess, when you know, you're know you a teenager, you score your goal against Lithuania. I'm, I'm sure I was on the bench that day. I was certainly there. And uh, it was an amazing moment. It was an important game for us. And I remember you scoring it kind of late on in the second half. And... Um, the excitement and the anticipation about a player of your talents, Faddy was was close to you in age as well, who was James McFadden, who was also a wonderful player. And and I felt like at the time with the other pieces that we had, we had a kind of squad there that, that maybe could achieve something. Talk to me about the early, the, the goal, the early start to your Scotland career and, and, uh, and, and the kind of promise of what you thought was ahead. No, without a doubt, into, you know, you're like I played against Norway my first cap away in a friendly, and then I'd come in for that, you know, the big game, the last group game to, uh, we needed to win to finish in the playoffs, to finish second place behind Germany. Um, and on the bench, and to come off the bench and to score the winner against Lithuania, you know, like 
your first goal in professional football. I haven't played too many times for Man United at that point either. Maybe only a couple of games. Yeah. I started the season for Man United at that point. Um, I'd maybe played a few games at the back end of the season before. So it's, it's a massive confidence booster. And then you, you know, we have the, the playoff against the Netherlands, which the first leg against, fantastic, my back heel to Fadi, we win the game. And yeah. Absolutely destroyed in the second leg. Probably too overconfident going there after the first leg. And they were unbelievable that night. But, you know, we got to the playoffs against Holland. We're knocked out. There's no disgrace in that. Maybe the, the result, the scoreline's a disgrace. But, you know, Holland are a world-class team. It became more difficult to qualify for major tournaments. And it is a massive disappointment in my... And I, I agree with you. We had some great players and we had some great teams and we had some massive missed opportunities. Probably more so from managers like Walter moving on. I think if Walter had stayed Scotland manager. Yeah. And that's no disrespect to Alex McLeish and that who came in afterwards. But Walter Smith was right up there beside Alex Ferguson. An unbelievable manager. And I feel like we were... We had the potential at times. There were some times where I felt like we weren't good enough and there was times where I think we were good enough and we just didn't have that Robert the Green or maybe that manager to take us over the line. So it's, it's a massive sense of disappointment, the fact that we never qualified for a major tournament while I played. Yeah, I, I kind of feel it as well, even though I was, you know, knowing the other caps you had, but I was part of a lot of squads and just to even get to a major tournament is something that... that when we were kids and we were watching Scotland teams, they always got there, didn't they? We went to five World Cups in a row and a few Euros and, and we had the moments and we were so near yet so far on a number of occasions. And I agree with you. I think if Walter had stayed with the consistency that we were showing then, the way that we were playing, I think it suited us. And I think the mentality was absolutely right. We had that kind of team club mentality spirit yeah. about us. It was disappointing for him to move on. And, and I, I don't think he would have moved anywhere else no. apart for Rangers you know it was exactly. that one club that he was always going to have to say yes to wasn't it no without a doubt and you can't oh, there's no grudges and even Alex McLeish as well when he moved on you know yeah. doing well as then and he gets the opportunity to go to Birmingham and you know other managers things don't quite work out the same you know Barry Votes was a very underrated manager as well you know got a hard rep but did a lot of good for Scottish football was maybe a little bit quirky, he was a first foreign manager and things like that, maybe a few little bits of issues with the language barrier, but a lot of time for Betty Votes and Rainer Bonhoff and the people in that staff and again, some of the great bunch of lads and maybe sometimes we're maybe just a short one player or a missing piece or just something, you know, maybe we had something yeah. an abundance of central midfielders a bit like we've got now and it was just always that one little thing we always became so close yet so far I think it was it's definitely disappointing because we should have done it. And it is difficult to qualify for these major competitions. And sometimes we agree with the death. We're almost just one game or one result or one goal away so many times. But you're either, you either do it or you don't, don't you? And you get yeah. that. It's fine margins. And it's, it's a massive disappointment. You know, I've got 80 caps and I'm really proud of them and proud of a lot of things. The biggest thing for me is I gave it all. Turned up all the time. Never shied away. Was always there. Loved being a part of it. Loved representing my country. Give it, give them all. Tried probably too hard sometimes, and ultimately didn't manage to do it. And I just, I, I wish the lads now the best because I want them to qualify. I'm a Scotland fan now. You know, I want it for the country because it'd be such a boost for everyone associated with the game. Yeah, and you mentioned eighty caps here. There was, there was a point where I thought for certain that you were going to be. Kenny Douglas's record, I, I really did. I, I just, I, the way that you turned up, you you know, you were always fit. 
you were absolutely flying. You were you were a most important player, and then you know your illness came, and, and you played very limited games in two years. Obviously, I think you're going to answer that was the thing that derailed that that possibility of getting up more than 102 caps. But um, again, I don't want you to go into that if you don't want it. But how tough was that time again on the sidelines at the most prominent part of your career? You're 27, 28, 29. That's supposedly the best years of your your playing career and, and, and you're finding yourself really debilitated with an illness rather than even like an injury where it's no. your leg. It's an illness. It must have been extremely tough. No, I was, Stephen. I agree with you. And I, did, I, I wanted 100 caps. I'll be completely honest. I didn't want 102 or 103. I would be quite happy with 100. I didn't want right. to get Kenny. I didn't, want, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to do that. You know, I just tried to get to the 100 because only one I'd ever done it. I, yes. I know it sounds stupid, but why would I want to go and beat him? I didn't want to beat him. I just wanted 100. And that was a real thing of mine. I think I would have done it. I got to I got to 50 the Hall of Fame like, before I was 25. Wow. You know? Like, the illness definitely stopped that. And as you say, at that point as well, I'm, I'm you know, I'm in my prime. I'm flying. I'm, you know, my game's really, really good. I'm, you know, one of the first names on the team sheet in Manchester United and a team that's winning Champions Leagues and winning Premier Leagues and I feel like I'm getting stronger. Gym's starting to eventually, we never did much gym as we were kids, as you know, and yeah. added to the game, it started, I added an extra yard of pace, I was becoming powerful, I was becoming more confident, I'd grown into myself and bang, 2011, an illness strikes me down that, you know, at the time I'm just thinking, I can manage with it a little bit, play on with it eventually, yeah. It's that debility, and I can't even leave the house. Never mind try and think about playing football, and it and it takes away the prime years of my career. And even coming back when I did come back, I was never the same. And I'm still just thankful the fact that I could get back. You know, I was told I'd never play again. So for me to come back and to play the number of games I did at the level I did, almost a miracle. Because even when I got back, I never, I was never the same player, and I had to accept that as well, which was mentally challenging. The whole period was mentally challenging. But I do say. The illness was defeating me, my body, but I could never let it defeat my mind. If my mind had went, I'd never have recovered. So I had to, again, similar to the injury stuff, I had to pick myself up every morning. There was a ad, split second every morning where you wake up, and then I used to think to myself, oh, I've got this illness, I've got to face this day with this debilitating illness. And I used to have to physically say to myself, my body's been broken down by it. I can't allow it to get me mentally or I'll never recover if I want to come back to play football. And eventually I had to go down the surgical route and a fantastic surgeon um, performed what I see as a miracle on me and allowed me the op- gave me the opportunity to potentially come back. And was was it was there ever points where playing again was kind of secondary? It was more about your kind of uh, health and, and enjoyment of life? And or were you always having that burning desire? I need to play some more games uh, as a professional footballer. People tried to tell me, listen, you need to think about the quality of your life and your family and the rest of your life, you know. And Alex Ferguson, doctors, surgeons, telling me like basically like you know you need to think about your life. And all in my head, I'm thinking about it. I need to get back playing football. And I am listening. And because I'm just that determined to get back to playing football. And my theory thinking behind it is I was still playing well ill. It got to the point where I literally was like, I had to be taken to hospital where I physically couldn't play. But even while I was still playing before I had the time periods out, I was still playing well. It's just that the illness was slowly getting work. And 
it's like each medication that I tried, you know, you have this three, four month period where you see if it works and then it doesn't work and then you need to go in the hospital. Then you come again, then you try the next one. So I'm having these up and down periods of playing, not playing. And in my head, I'm going, well, if I can play when I'm ill, surely I can play if the surgery is a success and I'm not ill. It's just that I wasn't thinking of the, the side effects of how it was going to be, the period out of the game how much weight I'd lost trying to build myself back up at that age and things like that. But I was determined that I managed to do it. I probably recognised I wasn't going to be the same player, but I managed to get back to a level maybe even I didn't think I'd get back to. I didn't been happy coming back to playing anywhere. And the fact that I could play in the Premier League for West Brom and captain them and get more Scotland caps than that is something I'm really proud of. Yeah, and you should be, mate. I thought you were absolutely brilliant at West Brom. And I know you had changed a little bit as a player, but you were playing in a... A really great a team that I love to watch. Then I did a lot of analysis here in Canada, um, and we often had your games because our slot was the Saturday at three p.m. So I did a lot of your games. But what a tough team and and what a great bunch of guys that must have been to play with as well. And again, you showed your determination and what makes you you, what makes you the person and the player that you were by getting back from that and, and showing that you still had a lot to give to, to the game of football. No, without a doubt, and I agree with you. I loved that West Brom team. I loved my time at the club. I loved the manager, Tony Pulis. Don't get me wrong, we had a way of playing that was yeah. hard, but we were hard to beat, and we had some proper guys in that team. But listen, and I went to the club as well um, in a relegation battle. You know, I made the decision that I battled through everything. I wanted to play every week. I felt like I still could. Tony Pulis was desperate for me. I nearly went to Valencia, and... Tony had a few other options. Tony Pulis was desperate for me. And that's what you want as a player. You want a manager that really wants you. And he believed in me and he wanted me. And he never gave in. And he constantly, even though his rumours are going elsewhere, he wanted me, he wanted me. And in the end, I went and I loved everyone. It was a great decision I made. He made me captain straight away, which I didn't expect. And we transformed the club from where it was, from how the dressing room was to how in a relegation battle, going down, without Tony Pulis going there, down, West Brom are going down that season. And then by the time we leave the club, we were a top 10 club and a right good team. And everyone hated playing against yeah. us. Sometimes it wasn't an even enjoyable playing in it, but <laughs> you had to respect it because what a great manager, no black and white. We were drilled, we were hard to beat. Nobody liked playing against us and we had great success and we had a right good team at the point where I left. And I you know I great memories of being at that club. Yeah, and your last club was Stoke, which was a little bit up and down. Um, Premier League and then Championship, unfortunately, for a little while. And then you decided to, to hang the boots up. Uh, was that a tough decision for you? Or did you feel like that was the time, the right time to say, OK, I've, I've gave everything, I've, I've gave my life, essentially, to this, this profession. And it's time to, to think about the, the next stages? Or was the kind of decision made by... Uh, your legs or by other people. Yeah. No, yeah, I went to Stoke and, and unfortunately it didn't work out. I didn't realise such a bad situation the club were in, you know, on and off the pitch and hindsight it wasn't a good decision and, you know, probably Stoke didn't see the best of me either, you know, I hold my hand up in that respect as well. My hip went around Christmas time and it's basically still causing me problems now. Right. That factor in it and I think that's a consequence of when I came back from my surgery, I've got bad scars down my right-hand side. So I think I've completely, in all the games I came back and played at West Brom, I've completely overloaded my left-hand side. And something's going to give, you know what it's like, that's just normal from an end. You have the consequence. And 
my left hip's basically done in now and caused me a lot of problems. So um, Paul Lambert came in, wanted to play this pressing, high-energy game. I came out of the team. We got relegated. Things happened with my contract where potentially shouldn't have been there. We were in the championship, but I didn't really play. My hip was killing me. It was an enjoyable time, to be honest. Yeah. And, and, uh, it was a play. Not a nice way to end my career, but at the same time, you're responsible for being part of a team that got Stoke City relegated, so you have to accept responsibility for that and not put the blame on anyone else. I was a part of it. Hold my hands up, we weren't good enough. And yeah, a combination of really just my age and my hip and how it finished at Stoke. I never officially retired, but I have retired because there's no way I'm coming back now, let me tell yeah. you. But yeah, it's probably more a combination of everything, really. I'd given a right good go for a number of years to get back. My hip's done in now. And recognising it now, if it had gone somewhere after Stoke, I probably would have struggled realising how bad my hip is. So, yeah, it's, it's time to hang up the boots. And it's not easy. It's tough. found it really, really difficult. Um, not enjoyed it one bit and miss it massively. And um, I knew I would, but at the same time, when it hits you that you're not a footballer anymore, it's, it's tough. Really tough. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it ever leaves us, mate. I mean, I'm sorry to tell you this because you're probably oh, no, might get no. better, but it's been what five and a bit years for me, and there's times where I just get this like pang in my heart. I still really, really miss playing the game, and I'm fortunate. I, I work in the game. I'm in media. I coach with the Canadian national team as an assistant coach. I'm I'm still very fortunate in the opportunities that I have, but. There is nothing like playing football. There's nothing like having that focus towards a Saturday, a, a goal, a, you know, a weekly goal, monthly goal, yearly goal. And so it never really leaves us. We just need to try and use that kind of experience and, and that mindset that we have, the determination, the qualities that you have as a guy and as a player and focus it into someone else. And for you, is that someone else you think going to be coaching? I know you've did your badges and stuff or... Is it more an executive role? You're smart enough to do that. You you have options. Again, I was lucky I had options, but sometimes options confuse you because the only one thing you want to do is play football and that's gone forever. No, without a doubt. And I agree with you. I'm really struggling. I miss it. And I miss the game. People talk to me about the dressing rooms and I do miss that. I miss the game. I miss actually going out there and playing up against an opponent, 11 v 11, match day. It's the, we lived the dream, didn't we? Let's yeah. be honest. I couldn't have done. I loved it and I'm missing. As you say, I'm probably going to miss it forever. I do want to stay involved in the game. I love every part of the game. I, I, I'm a bit, I don't have any other interests. I just absorb, I watch every game of football. I love it. I want to go to as many games as possible. I want to watch my kids play. I don't play golf. I don't really have any other interests. I'm yeah. just, just football, football, football all the time. Every game it's on, I watch it. And I would love to coach and manage. It's something I've always thought about. But I need to mentally get in a better position from not playing. I yeah. don't feel there that I agree with you, you'll never lose it, but I need to get myself mentally in a better position because if I was coaching in that now, I'd still think I was the best player. I don't think that's a good thing. <laughs> really bad. I'd still want to join in training and show I was the best player. And then if I was the best player, I'd be like, I might be manager, and that's just the way I am. So I need to get past that now where I physically can be the best player in training. And then I'll go and become a manager. <laughs> The hardest thing's training, though, mate, because when I when I call the games in MLS and I'm up high and I'm watching it, I'm going like, I know I can't be out there anymore. I can see the games too fast. I'm like, okay. But when I visit the training ground and I've got someone for sports center or that, I'm like, I can still train. 
<laughs> that pitch is small enough for me still to be effective. Yeah. And it kills me, mate. It's the worst feeling to be at training or pre-match to be pitch side when the guys are warming up and you can smell the grass and you can you can see the stadium filling and the buzz coming. There's times I could cry, honestly. It's so hard. I agree. And it's it, it, it never goes, but but I, I want to I want to start a masters league. Honestly, I do think there should be some sort of transition. Honestly, I think that players do struggle mentally. I'm yeah. not saying they're going to make loads of money from it, but why not have a bit like the darts where you go around the country and have teams of player, players are physically capable of playing on a smaller pitch? The old tenant sixes pitch. None of this lines. There's got to be boards so you can play off the. <laughs> Like you know what I mean? It'd be great for players who come out of the game who still love it, who still want to play. And it's not about making money, it's about just having that feeling of still a transition almost from nobody. Yeah. You know, it'd be a great idea. You know, it's easier said than done, though, all these sort of things. But yeah, the transition's a hard part. We, I, I've started a company here called Horizon Leader Group where we're trying to transition athletes into other roles because we have so many great attributes speaking to you for over an hour now. I've seen the attributes in you so, as a guy that what's next to Darren Fletcher, I guess, is the big question. Like, you're, so you're a guy who has we, we many options and opportunities here, to, to move into different areas of football. You're doing your coaching badges, I assume, Fletch. What, what stage are you at with them? Yeah, I'm on my A, a license just now. I managed to finish my B. West Brom helped me out in doing that. And I'm back in at Manchester United um, uh, with the kids on a Monday and midweek and doing my A. And just... Um, getting myself as best prepared as possible because there will become a time where I, I do fancy a crack at management and coaching. But I want to be as prepared as possible for when that happens. So doing a lot of time just now, studying, studying the game, studying ideas, training techniques, formation, watching as much football as possible, trying to get some ideas in my head and practice some things for eventually when hopefully one day we're I become a manager, enjoying the madness of it, and it's something that's always excited me. I think you either want to do it or you don't, and for me, it's the itches there, and I want to do it. But I want to be as prepared as possible for when that chance comes. Yeah, I'm sure whatever you decide, mate, you're going to be a great success, and I appreciate your time getting to know you even better than I already do, and about your pathway and and your uh, your moments in the game. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and good luck uh, in whatever's next. Thanks, Stevie. I've enjoyed the chat. Good man. Yes, Fletch. <laughs>